Good morning, beloved. I'm Jim Hollenbach. Uh, by way of a brief introduction for those I haven't really had a chance to get to know well, or for those who may be listening online, uh, let me offer uh, a quick overview of my life. I've been married to the love of my life, my dear wife Eileen, for 52 years. I've been a Christian for 49 and I grew up in New Jersey, somehow managing to earn a couple of engineering degrees. Uh, I did some minor design work on the Boeing 747 and then went into the US Navy, where I was a carrier pilot, a squadron commander, a uh, air wing strike leader, and a program manager. After leaving active duty, I was a systems engineering consultant to DOD and to NASA for 11 years. Eileen and I moved to St. Petersburg in 2008 to see my folks through the end of their lives. We have two children and one grandson living in Virginia. I no longer work for a living, uh, but I am honored to have been elected by this church to serve a, her as a lay elder, uh, pastoring alongside Ronnie. It's my privilege to preach God's word to you this morning. I always imagined life as a retired guy would be a little more relaxing than it's proving to be. Uh, my to-do list is still long. My mind is often swirling around with many things I've got going on. How about you? Is, is your life also busier than you would like? I suspect it is. And how about your thoughts? What do you think about this week? Our thoughts tend to be dominated by the immediate tasks at hand, uh, you know, the kind of important but mundane stuff like caring for ourselves, our family, our home, earning a living, paying the bills, etc. When we do have a moment to catch our breath and think about larger issues, we tend to focus on challenges we face, the decisions that loom ahead. Hopefully, we also regularly think about other things beyond our own family, to include finding ways to love our neighbors, to one another, this church family, and to stay in touch with friends. But sometimes, death suddenly intrudes into our daily life. It scrambles our routine, it dominates our thoughts. How often do you think about death? In the recent past, Many of you have lost a loved one. Some of their deaths were anticipated, so you had time to respond deliberately. Some deaths came quickly, such that you may have only had a short time to reach out and pray for them or with them before they were gone. Your thoughts are still on them. You miss them. You're grieving for them as you should. Sometimes the death of another person we don't know personally captures our thoughts. Uh, it might be the death of someone famous like uh, country singer Toby Keith who died of stomach cancer this past Monday. Sometimes the suddenness of the sudden one's death shocks us. For instance, did you see the report in the Tampa Bay Times about the two women in Clearwater, their names were Martha Perry and Mary Ellen Pender, who were killed on, just on February 1st. When a light plane crashed through the roof of Martha's trailer, 
They had no idea death was close. Death came upon them so suddenly that they couldn't comprehend or react to what was happening. How did you react when you heard their story? Did you give much thought to the out of the blue death of two people you didn't know? If so, what did you think? Well, to let Jesus help us think about how we each should have reacted, let's open our Bibles to that 13th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, according, uh, Gospel according to Luke. That's, of course, the third Gospel account in the New Testament, and we'll be considering the verses which Nicole just read to us, verses 1 through 9. As you've already heard, Jesus has some things to tell us about how to think about death. As Ronnie noted last week, here at Covenant uh, Hope, we feast on every word that comes from the mouth of God by preaching expositionally, going verse by verse through the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments. We trust that by teaching every word of God, our minds will gradually become more closely conformed to God's mind, and we will better see things as he does. As you might suspect, that takes time. We began our study of Luke on June 4th last year. Lord willing, we'll complete Luke on July 21st of this year. That's 13 and a half months. Whew. Thank you for bearing with your pastors through this journey as we endeavor to shepherd you biblically. We know the Holy Spirit was active in the writing of the Bible. He's also active in conveying the truth of the Bible to the minds of those who read it. So let's ask for his help now. Holy Spirit of God, we praise you for having breathed out all of Scripture. We pray you will now help us to understand it rightly. You tell us in 1 Corinthians 2 that no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we are blessed to have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so, indwelling spirit, we pray you will now illumine our hearts and minds to grasp the truth of the scriptures that we will be considering. For the glory of Jesus, please help us to see more of his perfections and our failings. Change us, we pray, so that we will follow him more faithfully. Amen. You might remember back that Luke 9 was a turning point in uh, Luke's account of Jesus' life. That was when the, we read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And of course, there in Jerusalem, Jesus' incarnation would climax in his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So from Luke 9.51 to Luke 19.27, we have a travelogue of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. This lengthy central section of Luke includes a lot of teaching um, and various interactions with his disciples, with the crowds, and with those who oppose him. Usually, Luke doesn't identify exactly where these things occur. He only occasionally mentions that he's recording a journey. We find such as, we will find such one such instance next week when we look at Luke 13, 22, 
which says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So that's the backdrop for this passage that we're talking about. We're right in the middle of that transition from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has been talking about the final judgment from Luke 12, verse 1, all the way on. Our nine verses, Luke 13, 1 through 9, bring that teaching to a conclusion. In this last section, Jesus continues to teach his hearers about the urgent need to repent. Our sermon passage has two sections in verses 1 to 5. The crowd tells Jesus about Pilate's horrible murder of some Galileans, and then Jesus responds. And then in uh, the second section, verses 6 through 9, Jesus tells a parable about a barren fig tree. Both convey really the same message, which is repent or perish. Repent or perish. And so that's the appropriate title for this sermon. Let's dive in and begin by considering the first two verses, Luke 13, 1 and 2. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, neither the Bible nor any other first century source give us any further information about Pilate killing Galileans and mixing their blood with their sacrifices. But those few words that Jesus gives us certainly convey the grotesque nature of this killing. It seems Pilate put the Galileans to death while they were at the temple slaughtering animals in the outer courts to offer sacrifices in the temple. The only places sacrifices could be made was Jerusalem. So that's where this occurred. And this act was actually in character for Pilate, even though we don't see any secondary sources to affirm it. Uh, Pilate was a native of Italy. He was the prefect of Judea. A prefect is a seasoned military officer in command of some 500 to 1,000 troops. He also served as the procreator, I'm sorry, procurator of Judea, a position that authorized him to collect taxes and manage the financial affairs of the province. His chief duty was to inform, enforce Rome's will. And that he did very ruthlessly, efficiently. And in the process, he often offended the religious and national sensibilities of the Jews. For example, uh, Josephus, the first century historian, tells us he used temple funds, declared korban, which means dedicated to God. You may remember that from Mark 7, to lengthen the aqueduct supplying water from the Hebron hills to Jerusalem. The Jews rioted. You took the money from our temple to do a works project. Anticipating this reaction, Pilate had many of his troops mingle with the crowd, disguised as civilians. And on Pilate's single, as they began to protest, his soldiers began clubbing the Jews. Many were killed by the blows of the soldiers or died in the stampede that followed. Incidents like this inflamed the Jews' hatred of Rome and eventually led to the rebellion, which resulted in Titus's conquest of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. 
When the crowd cites Pilate's murder of the Galileans, Jesus' reaction is interesting. He doesn't comment on Pilate's evil, nor explain why God and his providence would not have spared the Galileans by keeping Pilate from doing this wickedness. Instead, he asks them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's challenging their thoughts. What are you thinking about this? Now, although the Jews certainly knew that some human suffering was undeserved, you can see that in the Psalms of Lament, for instance. A Jewish theology, as a rule, ascribes suffering as a consequence of sin. Rabbis might cite Leviticus 26, which lists blessings for obeying God's commandments and a progressive series of curses for disobedience. Or they might cite Proverbs 10, verses 24 and 25, which say, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more but the righteous is established forever. Or they could also cite other Proverbs, such as Proverbs 24, 16, which says, the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So that was where the, his hearer's mind was going to, the sins of the, those who had suffered. But in verse 3, of our passage, Jesus forcefully rejects the notion that the Galileans that Pilate killed were any worse sinners than those in the crowd. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise, you will all likewise perish. Christ instead calls his hearers to repent. It's a warning that a problem exists between humanity and God that necessitates confession and an abrupt course correction. We know that repentance was John the Baptist's message. You may remember in Luke 3, 8, he's recorded as saying, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And we saw in Luke 5, 32, that Jesus declares, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. God is real, despite what the world tells us. Religious people didn't just make him up. He is there and he is not silent. He is all powerful and all good. He created everything and he made us to be like him. But we have all rebelled against him. We have chosen to live our own way to make up our own rules. The guilt that we experience when we've done or said something that we know is wrong is there because we were made in God's image. There is a witness left in us to the very character of God. What our consciences tell us after we've sinned is the truth. We have earned God's damnation. But God has provided a way that we can be saved, a way we can be reconciled to him, a way we can avoid an eternity in hell. His name is Jesus. The eternal son of God became man. 
He lived a life in perfect harmony with God, something we do not do. He never sinned, so he had no penalty to pay for himself. But he voluntarily suffered and died on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of others. He died in the place of everyone who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. When someone does that, they are forgiven by God. They are adopted as his child. They are promised an eternity with him in heaven. Hmm. So may I say to any non-Christians among us today or possibly listening online that this salvation could include you. If you'll do that. Repent and turn to Jesus as Lord. Repent of trying to be your own God and turn the lead over to God's Messiah, Jesus, as your Lord. It's the only way we can be reconciled to God. Jesus makes that clear. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Jesus states here in verse 3, the only alternative path to repentance is perishing. In the next two verses, Luke 13, verses 4 and 5, Jesus cites another tragic instance. He then asks the same questions and gives the same answer. Of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, the tower in Siloam is assumed to have been near, in Jerusalem's wall, near the Pool of Siloam in the southeast corner. Uh, we see that talk, the pool talked about in John 9, if you're interested. Most likely, the tower collapsed while it was under construction. We have no remains still available. No remnants of such a tower have been found. Now, the Galilean's death had a, had a villain, Pilate. But the collapse of a tower causing 18 deaths lacked an obvious culprit. It could have been, probably was thought of as an act of God. Thus the crowd was probably even more inclined to think that the death of those 18 was a punishment of God for sin. And since those in the crowd were still alive, they might have considered themselves innocent or at least less guilty. Jesus again rejects such an idea. Now, Jesus is not denying the connection between catastrophe and human evil for all such afflictions stem from the fall. Recall that death did not enter the world until Adam sinned. Romans 5 tells us, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Even though an individual's death may not be a direct result of something that he did. All death is a result of mankind's sinful rebellion against his creator, against our creator. It's the sin of every human being that Jesus is saying must be repented of. When Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, he is warning his hearers about not just physical death, 
but dying without first being reconciled to God and thus deserving of nothing other than God banishing to an eternal spiritual death in hell. Jesus' point is that every disaster in history points forward to the judgment of hell on the last day, unless we repent. And we're told in Ecclesiastes 11, man does not know his time. No one is guaranteed time to prepare for death. So now is the time to repent while we still can. This is the same point Jesus made back in Luke 12, verses 57 to 59, which Ronnie summarized last week as settle accounts while we can. Okay, so let's stop and think for a moment about ourselves. Are you inclined to see a correlation between suffering and sin? Maybe you think that's the case because what Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for what one sows that 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 will he also reap. Yes, Scripture does tell us that people reap what they sow. But it doesn't allow us to draw this direct, simple, one-on-one line to correlate great tragedy with a specific sin. God's providence is more mysterious than that, just as the book of Job makes perfectly clear. Jesus' answer to the crowd addresses us too. The lesson to be learned is not that the people who were spared were more righteous than the sufferers. Instead, any tragedy should remind us that God's judgment is coming on all who do not repent of their sin and turn to Jesus for salvation. So that's how we should react to a tragedy like Martha and Mary Ellen dying without warning because a plane crashed through the roof of Martha's trailer. Our response to seeing our fellow sinners suffer tragedy should be to thank God for his mercy, say, there but for the grace of God go I, and pray for the incident to prompt people to repent and turn to God. A calamitous judgment will fall on each of us if we remain in our sin. I'd like to suggest three more application points about these first five verses. Uh, One, Jesus is not teaching that we shouldn't grieve over tragedies. We should lament the evil in this world. And as Paul tells us in Romans 12, we should weep with those who weep. Second, uh, the first of the 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We need to repent and keep, on re- and keep on repenting. For as we're told in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Three, it's not just tragedies like hurricanes and fatal car accidents and airplanes falling out of the sky that should remind us that hell awaits those who do not repent. Every wrinkle, every gray hair, every physical deterioration 
of our bodies is a parable, parable reminding us of the consequences of sin. I'm probably more attuned to that parable than you are at this point in life, but it's true for all of us. We are all dying, and our bodies are telling us that. We will die, and we will soon stand in judgment before God. We must cling to the cross of Christ as our only hope in that day of judgment. And in the meantime, as John the Baptist exhorts there in Luke 3, let's bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The call to bear fruits is a good segue to the second section of our passage. <coughs> we find the parable of the fig tree in verses 6 through 9. It's one of the 24 the barren fig tree, excuse me. It's one of the 24 parables in Luke, and this one appears only in Luke. Let's look first at verses 6 and 7. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Well, a vineyard provides fertile soil for a fig tree. And it was common for Israelites to plant fruit trees in vineyards. The owner expected fruit from the tree. That was reasonable. He gave the tree some ground to produce something that the owner valued, fruit. If the tree was not going to produce fruit, the owner wanted to use that ground for something else. Leviticus 19.23 prohibits fruit to be taken from a tree for the first three years after it's planted. God's law is an interesting thing, what you find there. Um, but since fruit could not be taken the first three years, and the owner says he's, he's come seeking fruits for three years, that means that this tree is at least six years old. It was an established tree. It was unlikely that it would ever bear fruit. The owner is ready to execute judgment on that tree by cutting it down. But then we see in, in verses 8 and 9 that the vine dresser is an advocate for the tree and asks the owner to give it another year. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the vine dresser says he will dig around the tree so that water can more easily get to the roots, and he will put manure on it to provide more nourishment. And because of the vine dresser's plea, the owner gives it one more chance. Parables are allegorical. Jesus' parables are stories that reveal a moral or religious truth. This parable uses metaphors, terms that represent something else. Perhaps they're obvious to you, but let's review them. First, in Scripture, both a fig tree and a vineyard are used to refer to the, to the nation of Israel. We saw one example of that in the Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah 8. 
the people would have known Jesus was talking about them. The owner, and I should say that he's not just talking about them, that fig tree doesn't just represent Israel. We are the new Israel. We see that in, in Romans 9. And so when he refers to the fig tree, we are represented there as well. We are the new Israel. The owner represents, not surprisingly, God. And the, the vine dresser, who's that? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Okay. And what's the fruit that the owner is seeking? That might not be immediately clear. Well, to answer that, we'll follow the first rule for interpreting Scripture, which is summarized as Scripture interprets Scripture. So let's look at what the Bible says elsewhere about fruit. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So so fruit is walking closely with Jesus, recognizing your total dependence on him. In the parable of the sower that we find in Matthew 13, Jesus says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So fruit is evangelism bringing others to know God. In Galatians 5, Paul tells us, familiar verse, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So fruit is having those godly characteristics shine in the way you live. In Philippians 1, Paul prays that the saints in Philippi will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So fruit is holiness. In Colossians 1, Paul prays that the saints in Colossae will be bearing fruit in every good work. So fruit is good works. And in Hebrews 13, we're exhorted to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So fruit is continually praising God. This is the fruit Jesus has in mind when he says in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So the point of the parable is that God's people must repent and show themselves faithful by bearing fruit before the hour of judgment arrives. God does not punish sinners immediately, but that does not mean that he approves of our sin. Let it alone this year also, the vine dresser said. That illustrates the intercession of Christ and the gracious patience of the Father. His patience shows he's merciful, and that they should repent while there is still time. But he will not always be patient. One day he will inspect us for fruit, and we must be ready. Notice that Jesus doesn't say what happens to the fig tree. This parable declares the owner's heart and a resolve that 
talks about the vine dresser's tender ministry to the tree, but it doesn't talk about the tree's response. The question is left open. Will there be fruit in keeping with inheritance, or will the owner cut it down? Each of us gets to write our own ending to this parable. Will we be fruit-bearing, or will we be fruitless? In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul exhorts us to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Surveying your fruit is an effective way to do that. So let's stop for a moment and think, what fruit is evident in your life? Are you walking closely with Jesus? Are you being evangelistic? Are you displaying godly characteristics? Are you growing in righteousness? Are you doing good works? Are you continually praising God? If you don't like the answer, if your inventory falls short, as mine does, what should you do? Well, let me first suggest one thing you don't do. In his great book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, Paul David Tripp says, much of what we do to produce growth and change in ourselves and others is little more than fruit stapling. It attempts to exchange good apples for bad apples without examining the heart, the root behind the behavior. Change that does not reach the heart rarely lasts. It is temporary and cosmetic. And so... Here are three things we should do. First, go to the vine dresser, our advocate, Jesus Christ. Read the Bible. Get to know how wonderful Jesus is. Let him dig into your heart and nourish it with his words and his love. A healthier heart will produce more fruit. Second, be part of a faithful local church. This will help you be sure of your own salvation. Christ's followers are meant to humble themselves and yoke themselves with other Christians who can help them understand whether the words they say about surrendering to Jesus as Lord are really true. Your fellow church members can tell you whether you're bearing good fruit. They can tell you whether you're really living a life of repentance and faith, yes, with sin, Yes, with a halting step, but truly trying to live a life of repentance and faith. There are many exhortations in the New Testament about deceiving ourselves. The way Jesus established to protect us from that deception is membership in a local church where the gospel is faithfully preached, baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly administered, and God's people do the one anothering that Scripture demands. Third, if you do come to realize you really aren't a Christian, pray for God's Spirit to convict you so you will truly repent. Do not delay. Do not presume on the patience of God. There is only a limited time for repentance. Scripture is clear in that announcement. 
So in conclusion, this passage has shown us that if we are to truly know and love our triune God and joyfully live in his presence forever, we must repent of our sin and surrender to the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If we do not, we will perish in our sin. Let's pray that we, let's close by praying that we will all do so. Almighty God, thank you for allowing each of us to write the end of this parable for ourselves. In your kindness, you've clearly called us to repent of our sins and follow Jesus as our Lord. We pray that by your spirit and by your word, you will enable us, indeed, compel us to repent of our sins, not just once, but continually. Please grant that we will faithfully follow Jesus throughout our short sojourn in this world and then dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.